Uh, Dan McTagg is with us. Uh, of course, uh, you know him, former liberal MP, consumer affairs critic, analyst, gasbuddy.com. He's with us now and a very busy guy today, I'm sure. Thanks for the time, Dan. I appreciate it. Oh, it's good to be here, Scott. Sorry. So, yeah, hey, no problem. I understand you're a busy guy today. Uh, where does the money go? I mean, as as our caller just said, the money comes in and then it gets it goes out the left hand, it goes around the government, then comes back in the right hand in the form of a of a tax break, I guess. Uh, so, how, how does that save the planet? What are we doing here? <laughs> I think what we're doing is trying to uh, do a little bit of window dressing and try to be all things to all people. Well, this stuff. is really about just making us feel good because the majority of Canadians want some sort of carbon tax, even though it doesn't bit a damn, it doesn't do a damn bit of good. It's like, okay, if I got to pay another four cents a liter, I feel good about it. At least we think we're doing something. Yeah, I know, and I. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, people have to recognize that uh, even four cents going into twelve point five cents a liter isn't uh, insignificant, and of course. Uh, for many people, uh, having a uh, carbon tax uh, that is imposed on them while other jurisdictions around the world and around them aren't doing a, a whiff of uh, difference in terms of their approach to the same thing just makes things that much more frustrating and potentially more or less competitive for folks here in, uh, in Ontario. Uh, it does concern me that we, uh, we've, if we do embrace this willy-nilly without much you know, thought, uh, then I think we we find ourselves in a situation of um, being highly frustrated. And the most frustrating thing, of course, you saw the polls as I did last week, where the number one issue for Canadians, bar none, is affordability. Um, you know, climate change and carbon taxes uh, rank 17 out of 17. Uh, so, you know, the reality here for me, as someone who has been responsible for two energy rebates in 2002 and again in 2003, is that you have winners and you have losers. Uh, anybody with a, who exceeds the national average uh, as the size of a family, uh, and then unbelievably, uh, if I'm to take uh, the Ottawa Citizens' view, uh, Vito Palici's uh, article uh, and interpretation last week on March 27th, that, that magic number is 2.6 people per family. So, yeah, if you're you know at home, uh, you don't need public transit. You, you rely on public transit. You live downtown. You have a little condominium. You live uh, you know uh, a fairly comfortable life. This is going to be good. You're going to make a couple hundred bucks. But for most people, uh, the the, uh, the folks that have to get up in the morning uh, have maybe one, possibly two cars, have a family of three kids or two kids, uh, this is going to be really tough. And more importantly, it comes at a time when they're really not taking into account the uh, full impact of uh, uh, overall carbon prices, not just today, but down the road when it starts affecting things like the cost of clothing, the cost, cost, cost of groceries. When you think that uh, natural gas, propane, diesel, which runs the economy, uh, you, you know, we are looking at having gone far too quickly. Uh, and this idea of feel good, uh, you know, do good could very well evaporate overnight and the goodwill out the window because most people are going to see this as being just, a, you know, an attempt at a tax grab by government that's uh, basically playing a bit of a shell game with your money. Is there a right way to do this, Dan? Yep. Uh, I think the best way to proceed is uh, if you do want this as an objective, let's do what has already been done. Use smart regulations to get there. Work with the big emitters. Don't give them, as this government has done, massive you know, uh, uh, exemptions. Uh, you're not going to achieve anything. Not that you could because, of course, our competitors aren't doing it, but I think we have to go in lockstep with what's happening in the world. And that isn't always a bad thing. When I hear people saying, oh, uh, the Americans, the Americans haven't done this, the Chinese haven't done this. I point out to people very quickly, and you and I have talked about this last time, corporate average fuel efficiency. CAFE rules in the United States have been around for 30 years. It's the reason we've gone from big, heavy-duty platform vehicles 
that were eight-cylinder gas-guzzling vehicles to vehicles that now sip fuel and uh, are better on emissions, and we're going to continue down that road. It doesn't matter, Dan. If it looks like a pickup truck, it's a pig on gas. I don't yeah, know. You know are, are people thinking that? We just bought a 2015 Ford Edge. Yeah. I mean, that car is huge. It runs on a two-liter engine. It yeah. sips gas, seven liters, seven and a half uh, liters to 100 kilometers. You know, if people want to look at that, then I'd be also concerned about driving a bicycle in the middle of winter, given the traffic uh, snarl-ups that we see here. Hmm. Um. <laughs> What about uh, other options? I mean, you know, in, you increase the price of gasoline, yet the transit is lagging behind. We've talked, yep. um, you know, my goodness, for generations about high-speed rail lines and all of this sort of stuff. And it's the same thing, you know, we just had an expert on that says, if you're really going to change people beha- people's behavior, you got to jack the price up way more than this. And instead of changing people's behavior, it would just cause a revolt and a change in political party. So is this just about <laughs> making us feel better? No, I think this is about people who still believe that uh, there's, uh, you know, there's still a way in which you treat and address the problem of a patient by bloodletting. I'm sorry, but that's retrograde. It's it's pretty negative, and it suggests to me that people uh, who make those kind of comments uh, make some asinine remarks that really can't bear the scrutiny of truth. And the fact is, efficiency is much better. You're not going to slow people down from doing what they're doing. So find a better way in which to get better modalities of transport, and that's already happening. Uh, you know, I don't care what vehicle you're driving today compared to what you're driving 20 years ago. The other part of this is, you know, let's not cut our nose off to spite our face. This isn't Luxembourg. This isn't, you know, a tiny duchy where you can get from one end to the other of the city or the, the country in about mm-hmm. three hours. Mm-hmm. This is Canada. And uh, yes, I get people living in the city don't need to have these kind of things, and public transport is the way to go. That's why in the early 2000s, uh, Scott, I was responsible for being the guy that pushed to get a lot of the GST money the federal government is making towards public transit. So, you know, I, I, I push back on these things. I got a little bit of uh, knowledge and uh, some credibility on these issues. I think that public transit's important. I think a variety of fuels is important, and a variety of changes in the way in which we perform. But we don't need to uh, smack ourselves over the head because a couple of trendies have come up with a new idea uh, in the corners of their rarefied uh, universities and colleges with uh, wonderful ideas that uh, may work well on paper, but when it comes to the practical implications of the people that are listening to you right now, don't work. And this is going to be very damaging to the economy. Uh, 30 seconds left. Is climate change going to be like the number one issue here in this federal election? No, it's the number 17 issue in the election. Affordability is the number one. But so. if, the, if, if the Liberals keep selling it that way, I mean, is that is that what's happening? Or are they just missing, missing ca- kitchen table issues here? Yeah, I think they're uh, they're just too trendy by half. And they may have support in the Bloc and the NDP and the Greens. But uh, we'll see how this settles out. I think the last provincial election we had made it pretty clear that people are fed up with uh, imposing taxes on them, causing them undue harm. Uh, and, of course, uh, a policy that uh, sets us apart from other jurisdictions and makes us less competitive. That's exactly where Ontario found itself up to June of last year. I'm a liberal, but i got to tell you, uh, the best way to approach this is by being pragmatic, not trying to be trendy and cute. Dan, get yourself back into politics. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Come on, we need you, Dan. I can say these things without trepidation. There you uh, go. Dan, as long as someone else is paying my bills. There you go. <laughs> Dan McTagg's been with his former Liberal MP and Consumer Affairs critic, uh, AnalystGasBuddy.com. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Pleasure. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Aaron Woodrick, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Uh, they've got an interesting column out today. Uh, this, uh, this April Fool's Day joke is on the taxpayers. Aaron is with us now. Aaron, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, thanks for having me. So how will this affect the average Canadian? Do we get it all back? 
Well, it's hard to see how we will, Scott. So, like, first of all, uh, you know, the Minister of the Environment, Catherine McKenna, insists that Canadians will be better off as a result of this. I think that's counterintuitive for most people. Uh, you're going to take money from us. Somehow you're going to spread it out in a way that we all have more. Uh, that math just doesn't add up. So the reality is this tax is designed to make things more expensive. That's its purpose. Um, and it's going to do that. And not just with gas itself, other forms of energy, but anything that's transported by something that uses gas, of course, the cost is going to go up. So, uh, you know, Canadians are going to pay more as a result of this. It's not really clear what the benefit is of it. And I think that's why a lot of people are struggling as to how it is them paying more at the gas pump is going to somehow stop global climate change. Yet if we, you know, hear some of the pollsters, uh, they say Canadians, Ontarians, uh, they're concerned about the climate. They want some sort of of plan of, of tax. I don't know. Where do we find the balance here? Well, I think the challenge, of course, is uh, I think everyone agrees that the environment is important, as you say. The question is, how much are they willing to pay to do something about it? That is a very different question. Uh, And I think a lot of people are already finding themselves squeezed. And as I said earlier on, you know, what is the impact of our actions? Uh, The reality is Canada is a very small part of a global problem. And anything we do, literally anything is only 1.6% of, of a much bigger problem. So there's a limited amount of impact we can have, and I think we need to be honest about that. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean we do nothing, but it does mean we're honest about what we can actually do and what's within our power here. Uh, and we were talking to our last guest, and they said in order for this to be really effective, you would have to make the price increase so drastic that it would actually change behavior. But would it change behavior or just cause a revolt and perhaps another election? Well, it would definitely change behavior because people couldn't afford to drive. Uh, that is that is the surest way. You know, if you tripled the price of gas, I guarantee you it would change behavior because people simply couldn't afford to fill up their cars anymore. But, yeah, it would obviously have serious political consequences. And that, Scott, is the real catch-22 I think carbon tax advocates are in. For it to really bite and really change a lot of behavior, it would have to be really high. And that's exactly the kind of tax that people can't afford and don't want. And do Canadians, Ontarians have options if that happens? I mean, it's not like we've got a, uh, a flawless transportation system. I mean, we've been talking about high-speed rail and all that other stuff for decades, and we never seem to progress on this. Well, yeah, and you're talking about even in large cities. I mean, transit is insufficient even in our largest cities in Ontario. Can you imagine what it's like in rural areas? You know, I know that mm. for some people who live in downtown Toronto, you can choose between walking or biking or taking the subway. Uh, if you live out in a rural area, you don't have those options. The only way to get around is to drive a car. And I, you know, I'm not sure that all carbon tax advocates appreciate that. Is this all politics, Aaron? Like, you know, okay, uh, yeah, we can, you know, we care about the environment, so we don't mind paying a little bit more, whether it's a few cents for a liter of gasoline. Uh, not really enough to change our behavior or really improve anything or our environmental footprint, but it just makes us feel like, well, we got a carbon tax, so we must be doing something. I think that's really what it is. It's about patting ourselves on the back and thinking that we're good stewards when, ironically, it's actually not going to do very much. So you get the worst of both worlds. You get people annoyed that they're being squeezed at the pumps, but you don't actually reduce emissions very much, if at all. Uh, Do Canadians, do you get the feeling that Canadians, or specifically those in Ontario, have felt like they have done enough? Like we're getting squeezed, we were getting squeezed with electricity prices, now we're getting squeezed on, on gasoline prices. Do you think that there's some fatigue growing around all of this? 
Yeah, I would definitely say this, and I've been at the CTF long enough now to see changes in, in people's perceptions. And I do get the sense that people are, they don't believe they're getting good value for the tax they pay. And they might be more willing to look at tax hikes, uh, God forbid, if they felt they were getting good value. But they feel the money they're already paying is not going towards the things they prioritize. Uh, and that's why they really resent when governments come looking for more. Are there advantages to, uh, obviously, we're paying more today because uh, the pro- uh, provincial government government didn't uh, implement its own uh, carbon tax plan of some sort. Uh, as you go across the country, are there any provinces that are faring, bare, uh, faring better? Are those that did their own, those that let the government do it for them? How, how, do you, how do you balance these? How do you compare these? Well, often British Columbia, Scott, is held up as the, as the role model, as the ideal for revenue-neutral carbon taxes, they say. But there's two problems. One is it turned out not to be revenue-neutral in the end. Taxes went up. And secondly, it didn't actually reduce emissions. Uh, people say, well, it reduced the rate of increase. But that's not really what we're looking at here. We're looking for net drops in carbon emissions. If that's not happening, even with the model tax, uh, carbon tax, it, it does beg the question, you know, is, is this really something that's going to work? Uh, Do you think the majority of Canadians want some sort of tax like this? I think the majority of Canadians want action on the environment. I think the minute you start to put price tags and dollars out of their pocket on it, the number starts to drop off rather rapidly. Does anybody know what that would be, what that solution is? Yeah, no, it's it's not clear what it is. And, 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 and as I said, the reason this problem is so unique is that it is a global issue. And so unlike other issues where Canada can pass a law or have policy and sort of adjust to the problem within our borders, because this is up in the sky, this is something that affects all of the whole planet, there's really a limit to what a, a relatively small country like Canada can do about the problem. Uh, all right, let's move on and talk about the escalator tax on alcohol. We're getting hit a couple of times here today. Well, I would say it's unfortunate if you were looking for a drink because your gas prices are high. Well, your beer is going to be more expensive, too, unfortunately. Um, Yeah, this escalator tax is something that the Trudeau government brought in last year. Um, And the reason we're really worried about this tax is it's a a very sneaky tax. It automatically increases excise taxes on beer, wine, and spirits every year. And that's unusual because normally, Scott, when you want to hike taxes, you have to go before the house. You have to tell everyone what you're doing and and sort of face the music. They're not doing that. uh, And I think that sets a really bad precedent. If you want to raise taxes, you should be open about it every year. You shouldn't sort of sneak it into the legislation and let it happen automatically. Uh, Otherwise, they might start doing it with a lot more than just beer tax. Well, again, this was always the chatter around the budget time was, you know, uh, sin taxes are going up. It's going to cost you more for this, that and the other. And as you said, it usually uh, offered some sort of debate around the issue. Now what happens is it just goes up annually no matter what, correct? That's right. And, you know, we just think that's not transparent. Uh, Really, one of the only defenses that taxpayers have against constant tax hikes everywhere is that politicians know that it's not going to be popular. And so if you even don't force them, if, if they can find a way to not even have to announce it every year, I think that that's asking for trouble in terms of rising taxes. Why wouldn't you just have an escalator tax on everything? Well, that's our fear. That's our fear that that they're going to learn the lesson saying, oh, we got away with it on beer taxes. Maybe we'll do it on other stuff, too. Um, And that's exactly why we think it's important that we keep drawing attention to this issue and that uh, this government or a future government gets rid of it. How do you think the how do you think this is going to be received uh, in the provinces that uh, didn't implement a carbon tax? How do you think this is going to be received over the next week? Do you think that people are just going to roll over and "Eh, it's four and a half cents? What do you do? It's a government. Uh, Or do you think they're going to speak up about this? 
Well, obviously, it's an election year. I think this is a live issue. It's certainly something that the Taxpayers Federation, our supporters, have, have been very concerned about from the early days. In fact, there was a point when it was really just our group and Brad Wall and Saskatchewan that were banging on about this. But uh, look, it, things like gas is the fact yesterday, Scott, that there were so many people lining up to fill up. Uh, before prices jump suggests to me people are particularly sensitive to this issue and uh, I just I don't think it's going to go away uh, and that's bad news for a government that uh, it's fair to say is is having some political challenges on a number of fronts right now. Aaron Woodrick has been with us the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Aaron as always thanks so much for the time much appreciated. Thanks a lot Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. While many stores are having a hard time opening uh, the sto- uh, opening up their legal pot shops, today, April 1st, not only gas price of gas going up, but also uh, legalized marijuana now on sale uh, at the retail level. Nothing in Hamilton opened up. Well, it's legal anyway. Uh, but there is a store in uh, Burlington. Realm Cannabis Company has uh, opened up its stores in Burlington to talk more about all of this. Uh, David Nguyen is with us. He is uh, owner of Realm Cannabis Company and on the line with us now. David, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. So you're open right now. The store is busy. Tell us what's going on. Uh, the day's going great. The turnout is something beyond my imagination. It's great to see the positive uh, customer experience, receiving their feedback, and knowledgeable educators to provide them with the proper information they seek. We have a lot of staff on hand to process purchases and security to help expedite the process for ID checking, ensuring that patrons are not intoxicated when entering the store and managing lines. And so what time did you open this morning? Was there a lineup? I mean, how busy has the store been? Uh, we opened at 9 but from, uh, we had one customer waited from 4.30 a.m. <laughs> pretty uh, crazy. Yeah, really. So is, the, is, it, is there a lineup now, or is it just busy? Uh, yeah, there is a lineup now. And how long, is the, how long is the lineup out the door? How many people? Give us a rough idea. Paint the picture. Um, from when I last looked, there was about 20, 30 people in the line. Outside. And how many do you have uh, on staff inside working? Uh, about 15 on staff. 15, holy smokes. And how big is the store itself? Uh, a little over 4,600 square foot of retail space. Okay, and where is your store located? Uh, 4031 Fairview Street, Burlington, Ontario. Uh, uh, 40, 103. Uh, 4031 Fairview Street, that's the cross of Fairview and Walkers? Uh, yeah, exactly. Fairview and Walkers. All right, so uh, how come you're open today, others are not? Um... Hmm, good question. Uh, I went from, from from when I won the lottery. Uh, I didn't waste any time. I I got a crew together and we just went at it. Um, I was very uh, it was very uh, I guess stressful to meet meet all the timelines. Mm-hmm. We all have to get a lot of things done, such as finding a location, construction, making sure everything's compliant with the AGCO, getting inventory and hiring staff. Like this is all a new experience for me, and it was great to see all my hard work has finally paid off. So how did you get into this? What made you start? What experience do you have? Uh, honestly, I had no experience. It was just, uh, I got lucky with the lottery, I guess. So you have no retail experience at all? No. Wow. And you just said, hey, this sounds like one of these, these things. I'm an entrepreneur. I want to get in on the ground floor. Exactly. It, uh, it looked like a golden opportunity. It's a growing industry. And why not, right? So what is the biggest challenge has been for you getting this store up and running, David? Uh, I guess mainly meeting deadlines. I had to pull some contractors away from other jobs in order to get the store completed in time and meeting all the standards and regulations provided by the AGTO. And what were you doing prior to getting into the cannabis business? 
uh, I was a filmmaker. Really? So, yeah. it, it, what what about filmmaking? Is that out of the business? Is that out of the uh, out of the life right now, or is this taken uh, over? No, well, film is, filmmaking was always a passion of mine. I feel like it, when I do have the time, I'll still uh, eventually go back to it. Uh, maybe a documentary on opening up a cannabis store. Ooh, that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, so the challenge was for you was for meeting all of the de- uh, all of the deadlines and just getting all these ducks in a row. What's it been like dealing with the government on this? Uh, no, every, everything was great. Um, they didn't they never gave me a hard time at all. And how difficult was it for you to get suppliers? Suppliers is just uh, supplied by the OCS, right? So it's not really that hard. And how do you educate yourself? Like you said, you didn't have any retail experience in this, or or in the cannabis industry, I guess. Uh, what? How did you? How do you go from zero to this in in such a quick amount of time? How did you learn about this? Yeah, I did a lot of studying, reading. Uh, I did my cancel, which uh, helped a lot. Yeah. Is there? A, what, what's that like? Getting the cancel? Um, it's a two to four hour process but it's fairly easy uh, you just gotta read it go through it pay attention and everything should be okay it's similar to getting a driver license i guess so what is your concern as you move forward here you are halfway through your first day how are you feeling about all this oh it's great um last night uh tossing and turning every for every 10 minutes per hour is like uh very anxious and excited i didn't know what to expect to be honest what about, uh, they, they say that uh, the reason that, uh, you know, they've restricted it to 25 stores opening initially is due to the lack of product. Have you had any issues getting product? I had no issues. From what I understand, they only allow 25 uh, retailers because they only have enough product to supply the 25. So it was no problem for you to get your store supplied? No. And and are you? How much are you selling today? How much are you sold so far? Do you have any idea? I have no idea. I've just been doing interviews all day. And and so does do, does supply come in like on a daily basis? Like it would be a liquor store or a beer store or such? Uh, weekly. Weekly. And do you think you've got enough to last you through the next week? I guess. Uh, yeah. So as uh, people are coming into the store, explain it to us, because most of us have never been into a, a cannabis store before. What, what does your store look like? What is the, what's the experience like? Uh, well, originally, my location used to be a TD bank. So you can imagine walking into a TD bank. There's a counter, uh, educators on the other side uh, serving cannabis, and clients coming on the other side to order them. And, uh, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 it's fine. And so if, if people don't know anything about this, there's people there that can explain to them what it's all about and how it all works? Yep. Uh, we have people on the floor. We have people as cashiers. And uh, we also have uh, uh, information cards. Uh, now, was there any sort of, you know, obviously these aren't run like a beer store or an LCBO, but they are controlled by the government. Is there any sort of restrictions on what your store can look like, what it has to have, what it can't have, any of that sort of thing? What, what can you tell us about that? Uh, for aesthetics, uh, it's, uh, I guess, fair game. You could do whatever you want. You just have to make sure that everything is not appealing to young children or youth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, no, from what I understand, like some stores uh, give off a very spiritual vibe. Some stores look like a boutique. 
mine is going for an Apple Store type vibe. S- sort of an Apple Store kind kind of vibe. Yeah. Wow. How did you come up with that? Um. Well, I walked into an Apple Store and I guess I was inspired. <laughs> <laughs> so as you move forward to the end of the week, or or w- w- what do you think your what do you, what do you think your questions are? How do you think you're going to feel come Friday? Um, I'm not sure. I feel like it's going to be crazy on the weekend, to be honest. All right, and still like just pretty much steady. And so you're opening at nine in the morning. When do you close? Uh, Eleven. Uh, it's only nine a.m. for today. Regular business hours is ten to eleven. Every day. 10 to 11 every day. All right. Uh, David Nugent, or sorry, David Nguyen has been with us, uh, owner of Realm Cannabis, and they are located at Fairview and Walker's Line in Burlington, and traffic is steady. Uh, David, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Retail cannabis now on sale in can- uh, in Ontario. Uh, well, some places anyway. Not in Hamilton. It is in Burlington. We were just talking to the owner of Realm Cannabis. Uh, that's located at Fairview and Walker's. He says business is brisk, uh, to say the least. Uh, let's bring in Dan Malik, uh, health sciences professor, Brock University, author of Try to Control Yourself, the Regulation of Public Drinking in Post-Prohibition, Ontario. He is with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. How are you doing? I'm doing well. You? I'm all right. So we've talked about this day coming for a hundred years. It seems. Are, are you surprised at how it all rolled out? Are you surprised where we are today? Um, well, there are a series of surprises along the way. I guess uh, the fact that it's you know it was legal to sell cannabis in October, but we're here in April, and uh, now we have retail um, storefronts in Ontario is, is not surprising, but kind of strange. We were just talking yeah. to the uh, owner of Realm Cannabis in, mm-hmm. in Burlington. I asked him, like, again, totally inexperienced filmmaker, uh, won the lottery and got himself a, a, a license, and bang, he's open on day one. How come some are open day one and some aren't? Uh, my understanding is there's a regulatory process to go through. It sounds like, uh, as with the, your previous guest, there was also um, uh, different levels of experience um, in doing this. So uh, that could be part of it. Uh, but, yeah, it, it sounds like mostly it was the process of vetting and uh, I, all of the different licensing um, systems they have to, that, that, that the provincial government is subjecting uh, each vendor to. Any surprises here with opening day? Uh, Realm said that uh, there was one person that slept over <laughs> overnight to get in. Yeah. I guess just to say you're the first, I don't know. But yeah. he said it's obviously pretty busy down there now. Any surprises with this opening day? Uh, that's not surprising that it's busy now. Uh, it's surprising that people were there early in the morning. <laughs> um, but, uh, um, no, I, I mean, if I, I just think back to the end of prohibition of liquor, as I often do, and um, there was a the, the stores were slammed the first day. There weren't a lot of them on the first day. Um, they ran out of supply on the first day. Although there was more to get, it wasn't like uh, far down the supply chain um, like we're facing in Ontario. Um, and it wasn't it wasn't a, a private um, run system that was open by lottery. It was intentional around the the volume uh, the, the number of people in a town. So so this is. It's not surprising. What was always surprising to me was this idea of a lottery, which seems uh, equal, but it's not equitable, right? Yeah. It's, it's um, you know, you've got 16,000 people applying. Um, some of them get it. The distribution is kind of spotty. 
and uh, and you end up with uh, a bunch of hiccups like we have. So that's why it's not surprising that there are these hiccups um, because of the kind of slapdash way the government actually ran this. Um, is the money to be made in these stores made in the first few years? Uh, I'm sure that it will be. It will probably also then be a steady uh, ongoing uh, thing. It really depends on how many more stores are open. And right now with the supply uh, limits, um, there is still a lot of competition from illegal vendors, right? So, um, so, so there are a lot of people who want to buy it legally, and they will, um, but they will... Um, but these, these st- most of these stores are going to have competition from the the so-called black market, where um, the um, the government had tried to had wanted to um, undercut or destroy that uh, that market, right? But until we have enough supply and enough stores, storefront stores, it's just not going to be able to happen. So uh, it will also there will be a lot of money to there is a lot of money to be made in the illegal market right now. Um, uh, the owner that we talked to said that uh, supply doesn't seem to be an issue with he- with them. They get weekly supplies in, and um, and and his appeared to be to be fine. Are you surprised that here's a guy with relatively little experience has got it up and running on day one? Um, I'm, no, I'm not surprised at that, uh, and I'm also not surprised that there is enough supply, given the limited number of stores that are open. Right. right. Remember that the the liberals are going to open 40 um, storefronts. Um, the the current government decided it would be 25, um, so uh, and and you know gave gave them more time to to set up. Uh, it's more about the the number of people who want to purchase this stuff legally and the number of and the amount of opportunity they have to do it. I mean, if if it had if they had opened a thousand stores like was the original sort of idea um, um, that the current government talked about. It, there would be a serious supply problem, right? So it's right. not surprising that it's it's limited. Um, it's ni- it's great to see that this guy is savvy enough to have been able to follow all the processes appropriately. Uh, the thing that's going to be weird too is is that these stores aren't, although they're supplied by, they're not regulated in the sense that you know they look like LCBO stores or. or uh, or beer stores. I asked this gentleman what his store was like. He went off the mod. He, he said he took his store off the Apple model. Oh yeah. Uh, which you know, I, I don't know what that means. Um, pretty clean, white, and uh, and boring. And, and a lot of uh, geniuses, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. A lot of people that are way smarter than me. Um, uh, that being said, um, will the novelty of this wear off? And at the end of the day, it's going to come down to price, and, and people who can get it elsewhere cheaper uh, will just do that. Uh, yes, the novelty will wear off. I think what will also, uh, it may be that when the novelty wears off, it's because it's become the, these have become the places to go. Um, the, it, it has to be paralleled with um, an increased crackdown in the black market, right? Like that's, that's the, the whole intention of this, along with keeping it out of the hands of kids, was to, to undercut the black market. So they do need to... If they want this to follow through, and by they I mean both levels of government, both from uh, federal and provincial, they need to uh, crank up the enforcement, which is part of the reason uh, when cities and municipalities started talking about opting out, there was also the incentive that there will be extra policing money that goes to the municipalities that don't opt out, right? So the municipalities that opt out 
don't get that money to police what will be a hotter market for the black market. How does the government resist not taxing the hell out of this? I mean, today we've got gas going up four and a half cents, also slid under that, and not many people realize this, the escalator tax on alcohol uh, started today. So that means, you know, it's no more complaining about after a budget comes out and they've hit the sin taxes. It's every year uh, with inflation, uh, there's an escalator tax on alcohol and it will go up every single year without being even announced. So, I I mean, can they suck the hell out of the alcohol companies and then, you know, give this stuff away? I mean, it's just sooner or later, there's going to be a breaking point. Aren't these two trains going to cross? Um, Probably. um, I mean, it's not sucking the hell, as you say, out of the alcohol companies. It's out of the consumers, right? Yes. Um, But uh, right now, the intention of this is to make, of the cannabis laws, is to make it at least as appealing as the illegal market, if not more so. Uh, Once, if the illegal market is seriously undermined and diminished, um, then you can start, you will probably start to see uh, increased taxation. But there's always a fine calculation, and I'm not sort of a, I don't know who would study this, a political scientist or an economist, but um, there's, a, there's a balancing point. If, I don't know if you remember back when the um, ta- sin taxes had gone up and up on, on, on tobacco, and then there was a lot, a huge black market, and right. I think it was under Harris, they cut the taxes in the black market, right. didn't collapse, but reduced. And they have to sort of follow this balance, and if it gets out of control... Uh, the taxation and the excise and all of that, then there will be a bigger problem. But right now, the point is to undercut it. And again, it's the same sort of thing that happened at the end of Prohibition, where there were a lot of illegal places and there were a lot of people who wanted to drink. And so they had to make the places, they were never as nice as some of the illegal right. um, places, and yep. you didn't have as much of a, of a selection, but you had a legal place to consume, and people tended to prefer that. Dan Malik has been with us, health sciences professor, Brock University. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's bring in Tim Powers, vice chairman, Summa Strategies, has served as advisor to national party leaders and federal cabinet ministers with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Scott, it's like that old soap opera as the world turns and it's still turning pretty fast but what was your feeling prior to the weekend when you started to hear excerpts it sort of left like a weird feeling in the pit of my stomach this is hit this is this is a new ugly isn't it it's a new ugly on a on a on a few levels i guess i mean what what the tape reveals so there's that and we can talk about that in a moment the fact that a a uh, cabinet minister felt that it was important for her uh, to breach a, a code of ethics, which she knew well, to tape um, to tape the clerk of the Privy Council because she felt, as she has said, that the conversation was going uh, going in the wrong direction. What does that say about the broader culture of the government? And the fact that she did do the taping, I think. Uh, uh, it, it's just weird. It, it's almost like, uh, although not of the same magnitude listening to some of the the tapes uh the historical tapes of richard nixon and the conversation yeah. he was taping right it's just who would have thought we've had bits and pieces in the past where parliamentarians have taped others the last one i can recall was during the martin era a conservative mp had, had uh, taped a conversation with a martin staffer and it wasn't very flattering but it certainly wasn't of this magnitude so how damaging is this? Well, it's not, 
it, 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 again, if you the ethics of her taping it aside, and there are certain people who say, well, look, she entrapped Michael Wernick. I, you know, I don't know where I fit on all of that. Uh, listening to the tape, it makes her testimony more valid. I think mm-hmm. uh, if you can put filters on it, uh, because effectively everything she said had happened in her call with Mr. Wernick, which she obviously uh, described in great detail at the Justice Committee, is borne out in that audio recording. Mr. Wernick's credibility uh, was not enhanced at all by the release of this tape. Uh, ironically, of course, and you know, some are now suggesting this was great foreshadowing. He said he didn't wear a wire. <laughs> well, wow. he was being taped at the uh, he was being taped at the time. But people all, all the more to, reason not to get not to get cute at an inquiry because you just never know. You, you, you never know. Um, I, I mean, he does press her a number of different times over the course of the call uh, to look at things in a different way. It, it's clear that while he doesn't directly say you need to do a DPA, he does everything but in suggesting this collision course and the prime minister's mad and, and irritated and all of that. So, and it's going to be the, the, the ringtone, the political ringtone of the next few weeks uh, leading into uh, the spring and closer to the election. And that's not the political ringtone the Liberals want uh, in the ears of Canadians. Uh, let's get to the actual recording of the call. Uh, apparently not illegal to do it, but your thoughts on her recording the call and her saying, her justifying it by saying, uh, considering what had happened, I felt the need to do it. Uh, yeah. Um, look, uh, I, I think... There have been a couple of bar associations, or maybe a few, that have come out and said, look, that's not Canadian lawyers, and she's still a Canadian lawyer, and she was Canada's lawyer uh, at the time of the call being taped. Uh, That's not the way you do business. Uh, She admits as much, I believe, in her written testimony. I haven't gone through it in great detail, but I've seen some of the the reports of it. Liberal partisans are jumping on this to say, look, um, she entrapped Michael Wernick. Look, this is the way she does business. Uh, And by saying that, they're suggesting that somehow she's not a credible figure and she's opportunistic. And this was all a setup on her part. I am not sure if Canadians are really going to get too fussed about that. Uh, I think they're going to be more interested in what is on the tape. Again, Tell me anybody who lost their mind over the propriety of Richard Nixon taping everybody. In the end, the story became about what was on the tape, Good the point. missing elements of the tape. Good point. So where do we go from here? Uh, this was submitted to the Justice Committee. Are you surprised they released the call? I think they had no choice, right? Yeah. Um, they, they said they were going to make everything public. Uh, so they did. I think they recognize they've uh, the liberals, at least on that committee, have taken a bit of a battering for not uh, having her back a second time. As we all had said, she was going to find a way to release information, and she has. 
Um, so I think they were trying to redeem themselves. I don't think this could have ever been been kept quiet if she so chose to make it pub- chose to make it public. Right. She did what will be interesting is now Jerry Butts, principal sec- former principal secretary, has submitted transcripts. I have that the committee has them now. I don't think a determination has been made on whether they'll be released or not. They probably should be in the in- interest of fairness. And maybe all these people need to go back to the committee again, which is what the opposition are arguing. Uh, the liberals have taken the the stance that the prime minister's statement on Friday, you know, oh no, it's all out there now, and uh, people can decide, which is what they've been saying for a few weeks. But uh, I'm I'm not sure that is a line that they can stick with if the pressure continues to mount to get more answers here. Well, it seems like the Justice Committee is busier now that it shut down on this issue than it was yeah. when it was wide open on this issue, because again, since they've decided up oh, nowhere to, to see here, they've got Jody Wilson-Raybould supplying more information, and now Gerald Bott. So, uh, as you mentioned, my next question is, do you think this is going to reopen, and we'll see what we saw before all over again? I think the next move in this is one we're all anticipating, which is the, the caucus fate of uh but or sorry, Wilson Rabel and Philpot. So Liberal Caucus, like every caucus, meets on Wednesday. Uh, that's the first time they're all together. I suspect there's going to be a great push to get them out. Prime Minister will want it to be framed in that the caucus wanted them out, and he did what caucus wanted. Then there'll be debates about, all right, have you emboldened their status, or will this now put the story to rest because they're independent MPs? But then that leads to a series of other dramas, right? So Jody Wilson-Rabel said on the weekend she was going to run as a liberal. Well, she's kicked out of caucus, and that's the first step. So if she's out there, she can't really run as a liberal. So the story's just going to go on and on and on from, from from that perspective. Does the Justice Committee, back to your question, open up? Maybe, um, but it, but I think it doesn't matter at this point. There there's still more elements to this story that's going to carry it at least for another week or two. Uh, wouldn't you? Uh, w- w- wouldn't something like this, especially the release of these recordings on Friday, haven't warranted some sort of emergency cabinet meeting on this rather than waiting till next this week? Uh, well, I suspect there were lots of conversations <laughs> between ministers and caucuses. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think, again, the, the government's trying to manage this. That Look, it's all out there now. This is just, they're, they're, I, they're, they're trying to put out some trial balloons right now, yeah. right? Which is, okay, we'll kick them out, we'll kick them out. They're trying to see what that reaction is and how Wilson, Ray Poe, and Philpott behave. So they're trying to feel it out. That's why they're not rushing there. And they're also trying to create the sense that it was caucus who made this right. happen, not the prime minister. And the prime minister is listening to his caucus because they can't create an obvious public-facing issue where the prime minister kicked out his two, two of his star former uh, two former star camp, uh, cabinet ministers who happen to be accomplished female leaders as well. It you know blows up his whole narrative that uh, he, he is the feminist. He is and was going to do something different. Will public now realize she has to go with the release of this conversation, whether they believe her or not? Will they still think, oh, man, this is you can't have these two people duking it out at Center Rice? Uh, is this, has this created an opening for the prime minister to get rid of them? It may, it may, because I think, you know, there is this narrative being pushed as well that, oh, well, the 
Jody Wilson-Raybould, look, she's really opportune. Her game plan can only be to take down the prime minister or to uh, to be prime minister herself one day. How can she stay on the same team if she's acting against the team? And that, of course, is the traditional way of thinking. You have people, your own uh, Sheila Copps, uh, who I have a good regard for, and Hamilton, who's seen some tough politics, pushing that. She may be right, she may be wrong, but that's certainly where the liberals want this story to go. These people are not in it for Canadians. This is all a big ruse on their part. They are just being ambitious politicians like everybody else before them. Prime Minister, get them out of the way. Caucus, get them out of the way so we can go about doing our job. So but again, I'm... if he does do that, Scott, I mean, it, it really does. you got to call him out for saying, or you're going to do politics differently. Yeah, you've taken yeah. some heat on all of this, but if you're kicking them out and assuming that their whole game plan was just to depose you, what makes you different from Mr. Kretchen or Mr. Mulroney or Harper or any of these other leaders? Is he picking the right people for these jobs, or is he too busy trying to check all the boxes that get him votes? I think, look, I... On paper, both Wilson Rabel and Philpot are highly accomplished people. I think they'd be in anybody's cabinet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think sometimes the ardent focus on image and making sure that that image is so well crafted that it externally looks good isn't always helpful to the internal functioning of the organization if you don't know the people you're appointing to cabinet well, a lot of the people that the Prime Minister appointed in Cabinet, he didn't necessarily know. It doesn't mean you have to know somebody to put them in Cabinet, but if they have a longer political tenure, you at least have a sense of how they behave. Uh, but, you know, people like Wilson Rabel and, and Philpott, you had to have a bit of, felt, of, of faith in. And in the case of Philpott, there's no one doubting or criticizing her performance as a Cabinet Minister in fact, the government would often tout what a capable individual she was, and she was the steward of many tough files. So I, I don't think he got it wrong uh, in terms of their skill set. Um, maybe, though, he didn't understand uh, the other side of this. They actually bought what he was selling, and mm. they should have been tough and, and, and pushed back, and it wasn't just some slick marketing job that they were part of, too. So uh, are they as good as gone come later this week after that meeting? Scott, we know that predicting anything here is a fool's <laughs> errand. Um, Does he have no I, choice, though? Is he backed into a corner I, I now? Again, his, I think he's going to have more caucus troubles with, with the people who have been loyal, who are out saying the most ridiculous things at the moment in, in justification of his you know, of, of this story and his perspective. Uh, I think he'll have more trouble if he doesn't put them out with the people who are going to be on the ballot with him in uh, in the fall. So I suspect, yes, they are gone. So if they are gone come end of week, where does this leave those two in regard to this? What happens next? Well, I think they're going to, maybe we'll hear more from Jane Philpott. She was right. the one who told Paul Wells there's so much more to be said. Uh, we're going to hear what they're going to do about their political futures. I don't think either one of them is necessarily going to um, move to another party because I think that would damage their credibility. But I think they will continue to have more to say and will feel more open in saying it uh, about what they believe wasn't working in, in 
in the government, uh, and that may continue to be damaging for uh, for the government. Who I think somebody counted it on the weekend. It's been I think it's 55 days or 56 days that this has been the leading story, uh, political story, and that's a long time. And there's a lot of damage that's been done, according to opinion polls. A uh, prominent Indigenous leader in British Columbia said the sun is setting on the prime minister. What is this doing for his uh, his popularity in these key uh, uh, election uh, categories, whether it be Indigenous community or the female gender? Yeah, he's got look you're the, the across all sectors he's he's lost support um can he rebuild it back i mean here's where the liberals push back and i think we talked about this a little bit that last week and it's an old school approach but hey it might work they're saying look would andrew Shear do any better would andrew Shear do any better would andrew Shear be more committed to an indigenous issues this is your moment um indigenous leadership across the country good luck if you think andrew Shear's is going to do it so there'll be more machiavellian that way and again when it comes to equity and and fairness and and the and advancing those issues that's the same argument you hear so they're going to point at cheer and say hey you know you may not like trudeau you may not like the mistakes that he's made but he's the person for you uh and if you don't believe us look at the other guys and you'll find out where what we're telling you is the, the truth so that's how they're going to deal with that whether again that works or not i don't know uh, getting back to the conversation uh, and the release of, of the conversation on Friday uh, over the weekend, Gerald Butts uh, offered a rebuttal. Will we get to hear that? Is, is what can he add to this to clarify, or are, are both the clerk of the Privy Council and Gerald Butts best just to not say anything at this point? Mike Warnick's probably best not not to say anything. Although, as, uh, as a lawyer said to me this morning, it was quite funny. He said, "You know what? I listened to that tape, and Warnick actually did." better on the tape that he did at committee and i suspect there will be some people who, who you know what that, that's but, a good point um but i i think jerry uh will certainly bots will certainly find a way to, to put his information out in the public realm if it doesn't get there again i think it's only fair uh you know if people were arguing it was only fair jody wilson rabel had the ability to respond again i think you have to take the same approach here so i suspect it will find its way out into the public realm if there's nothing too politically contentious or damaging to the government as the government members on the uh, committee who uh, would determine that decide. Maybe they should have let her speak twice. <laughs> Might have been easier, right? <laughs> goodness. You also have this other hard-to-believe line from the government, and it's all of these hard-to-believe lines that have gotten them in trouble and contradicted them. This line, the one specifically coming out of Friday, that Wernick said, oh, I didn't brief the Prime Minister on this. Yeah. Uh, because it was the Christmas holidays. Well, I can tell you, having worked in government, um, you know, government, like anything else, doesn't stop. I'm talking to you today on a wonderful BlackBerry phone. It has the ability to text and send emails. Uh, and Mr. Wernick has similar communications devices. It's really hard to believe that mm. if this was so important as was clear in Mr. Wernick's 17-minute conversation with Jody Wilson-Raybould, hard to believe at some level the Prime Minister's office didn't get a response, and that Mr. Wernick somehow sat on it until after Christmas and apparently didn't share the full details of the conversation with the Prime Minister until February or something. Like, that that, that stretches the bounds of truth. So, you know, that, does this confirm where the government gets themselves in trouble. Does this confirm pressure? <laughs> 
Well, again, it's like if the the director of programming at uh, at your radio station calls you and talks to you for 17 minutes and says, Scott, I think you shouldn't have that Tim guy on, but no, he's good on the radio, but, you know, I don't like what he says. Uh, Scott, uh, can you get find somebody else? He's not telling you to remove me, but, uh, but it, it certainly seems like he's suggesting a course of action. Tim, we guarantee we'll call you later. Oh, jeez, God, you're making me feel good today. Thanks, buddy. Tim Powers is with us, Vice Chairman of Summa Strategies. Tim, as always, thanks so much for the insight. Much appreciated. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.